I'm here. Uh, uh, dear Shep, would enjoy hearing you give a discourse on pinball sometime. Pinball. I've been curious about it ever since my cousin received the pinball machine for Christmas. I understand that the game has ancient origins, but I've been unable to find out much information about the history of pinballs. What the hell makes this guy think that I have any information on the history of the pinball machine? I will tell you this. Some of the more exciting moments of my life have been spent in the immediate vicinity of a pinball machine. And uh, I'll never forget Bolas Witkowski. You mentioned pinball. I remember Bolas Witkowski. Old Bo was one of the absolute greats in the pinball world. You know, we all know uh, small immortals in our own way. You know, we knew... You know, some kid that could do something really great. But down at George's newsstand, George had uh, two big pinball machines in there. And all of us newsboys used to work on down there. You know, once in a while when we were feeding, uh, you know, feeding a little flush, we'd play the pinball machine. And they had one pinball machine that was called uh, All-American. And it had flags on it. And, uh, <laughs> and it had these two football teams, apparently. And, you know, it had little bumpers and the whole business with the lights and all that stuff. And uh, you were supposed to score points. And every time every time the uh, uh, the ball would go into a hole, you would get so many yards. It was an all-American football game type. Say you would get so many yards. And then if you, get, if you got the ball all the way down at the bottom, it would go ding, 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 ding. It was a touchdown, see? And uh, you could get extra points. Every time you got a touchdown, an extra ball would come up. And so, of course, the whole idea was to... Uh, was to get the uh, X numbers of touchdowns and points, and you would win. Well, that wasn't such an exciting game. Nobody, nobody kind of dug that one. But they had another one called the 500, which was a pinball game based on the Indianapolis 500 race. And it had big pictures of cars all over the place. See, and uh, the track on the uh, on the actual pinball uh, face of the machine, where the bumpers were and all that stuff. They had uh, the picture of the track, the big uh, guy with the big checkered flag and all that stuff. And I can remember Bolas. I don't remember how the scoring worked. But Bolas used to stand in front of the machine. This is what has forever made me realize there must be something. There has to be something to cybernetics. Well, now, you know, you know what cybernetics is, of course, this is the relationship of man to machine and so forth. But most people think of it the other way, you see, uh, that the machine influences man. Well, this is true. I think man is a different man than he is, you know, today than he was, let's say, in 1891. I think he's been profoundly influenced by, let's say, the automobile and a pencil sharpener and uh, various other great things in our lives. And I know, I know one guy that was totally influenced by a uh, blender. You know what a blender is? You know those things where you put the ice and all that jazz in? Well, uh, he gave his wife a blender for Christmas one year. It's been four years now, four hectic, hellish years. And uh, he he gave his wife a blender. Now he was he was a very straight guy up to that point, and uh, he was you know how on before Christmas they always have these TV ads every year. There's a new big gift like the electric carving knife, this big one year. Well, this was the blender year. Do you remember the year when they had the broiler year, the electric broiler year? Every every third TV commercial was about a broiler where you didn't show a ham in there cooking away there, and you could do all this stuff with it. I don't know whoever all those broilers are now. I never see them in the houses anymore, but they, they sold millions. And anyway, he bought this blender. So uh, one night, he was sitting there, and uh, along with the blender came a like a recipe book on groovy stuff you could do with a blender. Well, up to this point, he figured what you'd made with a blender, you know, you just uh, 
You just, uh, you know, blend stuff. Because you, you, uh, they never show you doing this kind of stuff on TV, you know, the kind of stuff that's really in the, uh, in the book. They always show them on TV, you know, putting uh, carrots and tomatoes and stuff in there, making fruit juice and jazz like that, see? So uh, that's what he thought the blender did. He was innocent. So he, uh, he's reading this thing, and he says, Hey, look, look at this here. He says, uh, Hey, Marge, do you, what, what is this? Uh, did you ever have a drink called a Dakiri? And she says, no. He says, well, it says you can make a drink called a dikiri here with this thing. Uh, it says a frozen dikiri. You know, I think I'm going to try some of that. And he reads this thing, and it says, you need a little rum. He says, we don't have nothing. We have any rum around here or anything? She says, no, heavens no. He said, well, uh, I'm going to go down to the store. I'm going to try one of them dikiris. And so he went down to the liquor store, and he bought himself some rum. And, of course, they had ice cubes and all that stuff, sugar. And so he put this stuff all into the blender. Bah! You know, bah! just look at this, chopping up the ice. Bah! Yeah. And he had this pot full of dakiri now, see, which is what he called the dakiri. So he, he poured it into this glass, and it's the little pile of ice, see, very innocent-looking thing. And you were supposed to drink it, according to the picture, with the straws. You know how they show them with the little short straws? So he didn't have any of those little short straws, but he had some real big long straws. So he cut a lot of little straws in half, and he stuck it in there, and he says, Hey, Marge, try this. And so she sipped it. Well, that's not bad. Well, one thing led to the next, and his hobby became making the curies, as he called them. And every night when he would get home from work, he would play with the blender and make dakiris. He tried all kinds of dakiris. He had the banana dakiri. He had a coconut dakiri. He had a peach brandy dakiri. And he had many types of dakiris. Well, he got so interested in his hobby that he kind of stopped going to work. He would stay home and make dakiris. Well, I don't have to tell you what finally happened to him. I better not, because it really did. In fact, he stopped even putting ice in his dakiris after a while, and didn't even mess around with the blender. He used to just go home and, you know, take out the bottle of gin, and the, he'd begin to experiment. First it was rum, you know, with the dakiris, and then he went into the peach brandy. Then he began with the Benedictine. Then he discovered bourbon. After bourbon, it was one short hop to rye. And then he, uh, you know, he played around a bit with vodka, all the while experimenting. He's all experimenting all the while, making notes and one thing to the other. Then he, he went from uh, from rye to uh, vodka. Then he began with gin. And after that, well, it was a very short hop to that door front down on 6th Avenue where you can still see him to these, you know, one of these days. You can you probably run into him yourself. You'll see him in the doorway down there. His one shoe is usually off. And he's sitting there. He looks like he sprung a leak. And he's got a bottle of 33-cent-a-gallon wine in his, in his claws. And he looks a hundred years old, at least. And it all started because of that blender. So man is influenced by machine. I'll concede that. He made dakiris. Don't you know what is it, a dakiri, friend? Well, it's a, it's a dakiri. That's all I can say. Now, I'm using his terminology. And by the way, he always felt all through his life that if he pronounced it badly, somehow it wasn't doing the real thing to him. You know, yeah, if you make a joke about the thing that's slowly rotting your liver, you pretend that it isn't doing it. 
Like the guys that come in and say, give me a martini, kind of makes it like a fun thing. You've heard that, haven't you, Tony? The little martini there? Well, actually, what he's getting is a big slug of Generoni. What he's doing. And I think that's one of the reasons why we apply innocent-sounding names to lethal things. It takes the onus off them. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> Somehow a pink lady can't do much to you, can it, friends? Well, I, I know one guy that threw up for one solid week after one fantastic night with pink ladies. Innocent drink. Of course, they'll do that to you. Be careful of Brandy Alexanders, too. They'll, they'll back up on you like uh, Billy be damned. I saw one guy one night sitting there with, uh, you know, he drunk about ten Brandy Alexanders. You know, they, they're very sneaky. They, they taste like a, a, a particularly uh, a delicious malt. I mean, they, they really do, you know. And he had about ten of these things. And all of a sudden, he just went, oop, like that. Just went with one sound. It came out of his ears. Didn't even come out of his mouth. He tried to stop it, see. Kept his mouth shut, but it was going to come out, man. So I uh, just thought I'd warn you that the machine can do it. Because there's the other thing, too, now. Uh, man affects the machine. And I'm convinced of that. I can remember Bolas hunched over the 500. Now, I don't know how he did it. He, his body would move. You could see his stomach muscles moving. His hips would move back and forth. You could see those ears tense with the with the tremendous excitement of the competition. And uh, I've seen Bolas score incredible scores on the 500. Incredible. And George, at one time, I think this is one of the great compliments a man can have in his life. One time, Bolas was banned from playing the pinball machine. He's just too good. That's all. Forget it. There was no contest anymore. Now, how did he do it? I don't know. I don't know how he could make that thing go to the right place. We, you know, we are, everybody's got the same plunger. And so on. It was only in later years that I discovered how he did it. I won't tell you, because I don't want to start a rash of that. But let's put it this way it involves magnets. <laughs> Paulus was precocious. <laughs> and uh, he used to play. In fact, he, there was at one point, I remember, I think George owed him something like 700 games. See, so he used to, if you'd win a game, you know, uh, you'd, you'd win free games. Well, Bolas would just monolopize, as he put it. He would monolopize the whole game all night because uh, he'd start out, he'd put a nickel in the thing and win three games. Well, then he'd play the first game of the three games, and he'd win 28 games. And by the time 8 o'clock would show up, he'd maybe have 70, maybe 100 games that George owed him. And finally, George would say, look, here, take it, nickels, go, get out. And he would give Bolas the nickels and throw them out. And he walked tall among us. Because my role always against the pinball machine was to feed it. I'm a born feeder. Other guys are takers. You hardly ever make the transition between feeding and taking. Remember this, for every, for every taker, there's 25 feeders. Right, Tony? And I mean in all phases of life. All phases. This is WOR, New York. Man, I'll tell you, you know, you know, you know the old expression, you can't get blood out of a rock? Can't get blood out of a turnip? <laughs> this station has proven that to be false. Totally. We got a turnip right there in the next studio. They've been getting blood out of that poor turnip <laughs> for ten years. Got a faucet now on his side. He just turn it on. Blood comes out. That's serene. Mix it with the orange juice around here. 
So, uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a... You never heard of that drink? Oh, you're going to hear a lot of things, a lot of things tonight. It's uh, Alexis Lachine time, and uh, let's see what the copy says. Are you one of those people just beginning to enjoy wine? <laughs> I'm the devil, and uh, I'm here to tell you about Alexis Lachine, which is an elegant French wine. In fact, it's a high-quality French wine. Well, the reason uh, this guy writes me this note, I'm going to tell you a story now. You ready for a story? I'm, you know, I, I think that from the very beginning in our lives, when we're just walking around squirts, I mean, almost too small to even have traumatic experiences. You know, you got to be, you have to be a certain age to begin to have traumatic experiences to recognize something bad is happening. When you're, when you're, you know, that, you, nothing is going to traumatize you if you don't recognize it as bad. And there's a certain point under which you don't recognize things. That's why you t- you see a two year old kid; he can sit and look in the face of a lion. He doesn't know. That's right. Just a big kitty, you know? So, But then you read enough about lions, and you know something about lions, and the next thing you know, this big fat old lion walks into your pad one night and stretches out and starts looking around for a snack. Well, that's a traumatic experience. You never get over it either. A true traumatic experience, you can, uh, you, can uh, you know, kind of salve it over with the psychologist and the... The uh, analyst and all that, but you never get really, uh, never, never erase it ever. Like my kid brother had a fantastic traumatic experience in the service. Yeah, or, he never got over it. He he once in a while wakes up giggling at three o'clock in the morning when he thinks of it. And it was this: he was working a high-powered transmitter in the Himalayas, which is in Burma, or at least that was the part of the Himalayas that were in Burma. And he said, you know, every morning he'd get up and he'd look over there and see. Uh, Mount Everest sitting over there, and uh, K-27 and, and uh, the Sherpas and all that stuff. Yeah, they were all there where he was, see? And he said the Sherpas would come down once in a while. He said they drank yak butter. He said, nothing like a good eye-opener in the morning with rancid yak butter. He says that'll stop you right there quick. And he said uh, they'd bring in yak butter and a curdled gnu milk. Because that was always good. He said then, <laughs> and he said they used to make a, uh, a uh, wonderful... Uh, Wonderful after dinner sweet out of coagulated yak blood. He said that was always a good one too. Now I'm just telling you what they eat over there. So I don't get mad at me. You'll not hear this stuff on uh, on uh, you know on the um, on the cooking shows on TV. But they're, 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 these things are cooked. And so one day Randy he was on late night. He was on midnight. His job was to run this big 50 kilowatt transmitter, which was in a little transmitting shack in a the jungle there in the Burmese jungle at midnight. And uh, he would uh, go out at midnight. He was a sergeant. He would, he would get his flashlight. And, and they turned the transmitter off, say, something like 6 o'clock in the evening. And it was down until midnight. And then they would turn it on again. It would work all the way through the day. It was this big, high-powered Air Force transmitter. And so one night, uh, and this, the transmitter, by the way, was in a shack that was up on pilings. You know, how they do in the jungle there to keep, uh, you know, to keep uh, the cockroaches from eating the tubes and stuff like that. And so... He, his transmitter was up on the pilings there, and it had a, it was all screened in. It was very hot there. It was Burma. So he got up one morning. He got, got up about 11 o'clock at night, actually. He was on the night shift, and he had a, he had a sandwich, you know, spam sandwich they have there. And he's, uh, not knowing he's about to have a moment that he will never forget. You know, I, I think most of our most fantastic moments are come without any warning whatsoever. That's what makes them fantastic. I mean, if you're told you're going to have a traumatic experience next Wednesday at 2.30, it turns out then not to be traumatic because you're all set for it. You know, it's a, 
It's the thing that you're not ready for. So Randy's sitting around there picking his teeth, and he is, is very hot. He's wearing nothing but GI shorts, you know, that kind of thing. And the, he's got it covered with uh, mosquito dope and salve and jazz like that to keep away the heat rash. And he goes picking his way through the jungle path down to the transmitter. Yeah, very calm, like anybody else. He'd been there for three years. He'd seen everything, you know. He was he was now half native, you know. He spoke a little Sikh. He'd speak a little like Hindustanic and all that stuff. Almost didn't speak English anymore. So he that's right. He, so he walks up the steps of this little shack. It's pitch dark, and the, he they had a little light switch off to the side there. See, they're generating their own juice there. So he throws the light switch on, and so he walks over and he stretches a little bit. And ah, well, another day, you know, another thirty cents. He, you know, after all, he was in the army. So he walks around. He takes a look at the transmitter. They had uh, they had meters, you know, to tell whether the filament voltage and all that. Stuff. So he starts throwing on the filament voltage and stuff like that. And he's looking at the big panel there. And, and boy, and he's kind of tired, and his eyeballs are hanging out. He had malaria for two years, you know, all that stuff. So he's just dragging away there. And he turns around and he looks back of him there. He was going to pick up the log, which was on the desk. You know, they kept the log of their operations. And he turns around to pick up the log. And he sees something behind him. He said, the first didn't register. He just looked. And then he thought, well, it's just that's that damn malaria that's starting again. I'm going to have another attack of malaria. You know, what happens when you get malaria, when it's really working, you, you tend to hallucinate. You know, uh, you get that fantastic fever. You tend to see things in the dark. You know, you do. You know, it's true. Have you ever had a, a, a bad case of some kind of virus or something? You find yourself uh, out of your head. You know how people use the, uh, the popular term is out of your head? You know, that's uh, kind of uh, hallucinating there, and you're having fantastic nightmares. Well, Randy figures he's going to get another shot of malaria, so he turns around. He said, first, I didn't. So he turns back to the transmitter. He had discovered any time he started to see things because of his malaria, to, to concentrate on what you were doing, it would go away. So he, so he turns back, and he's turning on the plate voltage and stuff like that. And then he looks to see if the hallucination is gone, and it ain't. It's starting to get up. It was at that point that he realized he did not have malaria. What he had was a 12,000-pound tiger who was sitting in the transmitter shack and who had just discovered my kid brother was made out of succulent bacon. And, uh, <laughs> and he was just, he's just starting to sit up, say... Randall went out through that. He shot through that door. He says, yeah, it's unbelievable. He's, you know, Randy always was very athletic. He says, but I want to tell you this. He says, I discovered that I had untapped, uh, completely unplumbed athletic abilities. He said, first of all, I broke the world's record for broad jump. He says, because I left my feet. He says, I went right through the door. And he says, I landed halfway back on the way to the barracks. He says, that was a good 75 feet. He says, now that was the first jump. He says, my next three strides took me right through the barracks, and I was halfway on down to the service club. He says, I was taking 40-foot strides. He says, I went right down. He says, all of a sudden, they hit me. You know, he, he, he may be after me. So he says, I turned around. Oh, there's a tiger in a transmitting shack. He says, with that, all the other GIs jumped up, you know, staggering around, yelling and hollering. He says, there's a tiger in a transmitting shack. Whoa, what a shepherd just ran through. Tiger. He says, they came pouring out with their... You know, their sidearms. Everybody had a sidearm. See, so the, the, the first action they've seen in years, you know, they all, they all come pouring out with Thompson submachine guns, 45s. These guys were falling out of bunks, and guys were falling up and down the stairs, and they, they got a big flashlight. They went back to where the tiger was, and he said, you should have seen it. He said, that tiger obviously decided that, uh, you know, he'd better clear out. He said, because the tiger went right through the screen door. 
He says, a big hole in the screen door. And he says, and that tiger just went right through it. And he says, all the guys are, you know, kind of disappointed. And at the same time, they were scared. They were glad he was gone. And uh, he says, you should have smelled the smell, a strange feline smell in that uh, transmitter shack that that tiger left behind. Just a smell. He said, you ever smell the Burmese tiger when it's being a tiger and it's not being an exhibit in the zoo? That's another kind of tiger. And he says, man, was he big. He said, you never saw anything. Big, flat face. Tremendous. And he said, for weeks after that, out in the darkness, he said, you could see him. He's circling the camp night after night. He would circle around. He said, you see these two big green eyes. That tiger. And he says, no, you know, that's been some time now ago. And he says, he gets nervous now even at this point when he gets around a cat. You know, it's just three o'clock in the morning. He wakes up, he looks up at the ceiling once in a while. He thinks his old, his old malaria is coming back. And he can hear the sound of a tiger stretching. He says, that's the first sound he heard. He says, you know, when a tiger stretches, see, have you ever heard, uh, he says, it, it, it's truly cosmic knuckle cracking. The tiger stretched. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm getting a little stiff. Ah, it's time for dinner. <laughs> He's popping his shoulders, and he says, oh, there he is right over there. It's my kid brother. Well, now, these things are traumatic moments. That's a traumatic moment. And I had a traumatic moment that involved a pinball machine. I just want to introduce you to traumatic moments. And I have never told this story, because it is painful. Some of the most painful things that you've had in your life seem trivial to others. True, Tony? That's right. And, uh, you know, the glove fits both hands, let's face it. Other people's terrible moments seem totally trivial, if not irrelevant to you. And they are, I suppose. But I I, I never gamble anymore because a terrible thing happened to me one day. Never gamble. Nope. You're, you're listening to a man of exemplary habits. I go past aqueduct without even so much as a side glance. The big A means nothing to me. Nothing. The little B, nothing. I have not even bought a New York lottery ticket. I just don't buy none of that stuff. You know why? Yeah. I think a little mood music wouldn't hurt here. Now hold it there, Tony. I'll give you the I'll give you the cue now. I was eight. I know it very well. I know how old I was at that time because other things which are beyond the scope of tonight's course. Now, when you're eight, you're in a very peculiar position as far as mankind is concerned. You're not a baby. And so you don't get away with stuff that babies do. If you're eight and you squat down and let it go, you're liable to get in trouble, right? Okay. But on the other hand, being eight... You're not expected to uh, to uh, hang in there like, say, a kid of fifteen, right? So you're not a baby. You're not a you're not a, an adolescent. You're nothing really when you're eight. And nobody writes stories about kids being eight. They're always writing stories about kids being, you know, a tortured adolescent, that kind of jazz. Now, I think it's far torturous more to be eight because you just have got no lobby going for you at all. And uh, people tend to, uh, on one hand, uh, give you responsibilities. On the other hand, they uh, they tend to think you're too dumb to do anything about it, see, which is probably true. And it's the period whenever you go to the grocery store, you have to take a list. 
you know, written down, which you give to Mr. Oscherschlager. And uh, your mother keeps saying, bring back the change. Tell them to put your change, put the change in your mitten. Right? You know, that it's kind of humiliating. Well, <laughs> one day, <laughs> we better set the mood for this. It was a day of evil portent. Yes, it was a day like any other day. The sun came up and the sun went down. There were clouds floating high over the Indiana landscape. It was a winter day. Like all other winter days, cold, rotten, and crummy. I was a kid like any other kid, faking it. And I was sent to Asher Schlager's grocery store. For one loaf of silver cup bread... 15 cents worth of sliced summer sausage, a small jar of Hellman's mayonnaise, and two cans of Campbell's tomato soup. So what, you say? What's so great about that, you say? Well, if you're that kind of Philistine... You will never understand the moment that occurred shortly after I arrived in Aschenschlager's grocery store, about to learn a lesson which has never left me. Aschenschlager's grocery store nestled next to a vacant lot that had a large Sherwin-Williams paint sign in it. Aschenschlager, a man who created monsters. Play them sad violins. Sing them sad songs. Blow them horns for all the lost and gone opportunities of a feckless youth. Yes, the saxophones of night blow their evil, hollow siren song, luring us on to the chasms of disaster. <laughs> Not bad, eh? Not bad, you say. You reset that, Tony. We're going to need it. So I headed down towards Oscherschlager's, and my mother gave me one dollar, a dollar bill, to pay for the stuff that I was supposed to buy. Now, the dollar bill was nicely folded up in the note that contained the uh, list of jazz that I was supposed to bring back, including a loaf of silver cup bread, which I remember distinctly because it later played a bad role in this tale of disaster. And she folded it up in the note, see? So I take the note down to Oscherschlager's and I'm standing around down there and there were some people ahead of me. Which just little kid, see? Some people ahead of me. And they're buying stuff. And I saw Kashmir Wisniewski was there too. He was buying stuff. And uh, Mr. Oscherschlager put the change from his stuff in his mitten. And he went out with his uh, little bag of stuff. And so finally, Oscherschlager looks down at me and says, What do you want? I said, Oh, uh, oh, uh, uh. And then I remembered that I had this note in my mitten, which was in my left mitten. 
And by that time, a large lady with a mustache had shouldered her way in, and now she was buying stuff. And Osterschlager's back in business, paying no attention to me. So I pull my note out of my mitten, and I see this dollar bill in my hand. <laughs> okay, there it's beginning, right? When you take a you know, I tell you, money can do more bad stuff to people. I mean, I think money, on the one hand, money is beautiful. On the other hand, money is evil. There's a love-hate relationship between money. The typical hippie who's putting money down all the time is standing on 6th Avenue down there on 8th Street with his hand out for you to give him some. I mean, if he didn't like money, he shouldn't be asking me for any, right? So there you are. That's love-hate all the time, that green stuff, man. And so I had a dollar bill. And I'm standing there with the dollar bill in my hand. And on the counter... Right next to the cash register, Mr. Oscherschlager had an infernal machine. Now, I'll have to describe this machine to you. It was an upright thing that had little nails in it, driven in the top of it, all the way down. See, right down the side, had little nails. And uh, at the bottom, it had about five different designations. One said five, one said ten, one said twenty-five, one said fifty. And there was a little kind of a chute at the bottom of it and a plunger. And at the top was a slot. Well, I'm watching this thing. I had never seen it before. When I see this guy, this big kid, he was about 15, he's standing around and he walks over and he puts a nickel in it. And it goes ding, 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 ding. The nickel goes right there. You can see it. The nickel's going down through the nails. See, ding, 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 ding. It goes in the 25 slot. The kid says, Hey, Osterschlager, you owe me a quarter. And his nickel's right there in the 25 slot. Osterschlager looks over and says, Oh, okay. All right, just a minute. Don't hold your... I can't tell you what he said, but he said, uh, Okay. And he reaches into the cash register and gives the kid a quarter. The kid puts another nickel in. And it goes in the zero slot. At which point, out came a green ball of gum. Well, he died. I never saw a thing like that, see? At which point, the kid takes his ball of gum and goes out. He now has a ball of gum, 25 cents, and he spent a dime which isn't bad. So I got a dollar in my hand. Mr. Osher comes over to me and says, what do you want, kid? And I give him the dollar. He says, what do you want me to do with this? Do you want change? Is that it? And he hands me a dollar's worth of change because he was busy. He didn't know what he was doing, really. What he was doing was forever shriveling the soul of an innocent victim. So I take a nickel and I put it in this thing at the top. I just put it in. It goes ding, 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 ding. Boing, 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 boing. Out came a yellow ball of gum. Well, I figured on the next one, I would get a quarter. So I put in another nickel. Ding, 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 Out comes a green ball of gum. I do not have to 
burden you with the rest of the sordid tale, except to point out that in less than ten minutes, the entire dollar had gone down the drain, and I had roughly fifteen various colored balls of gum, which were now stuck in my right mitten. I would put them in my right mitten, and I was a left-handed pinball player at that time, Asher Schlager comes over finally and says, well, what do you want? He says, well, give me the note. Oh, hit me, the note. I take the note and hand it to him. He says, where's the money? I says, put it in the machine. So I can't give you no bread without, without no money. He says, uh, what am I going to do? He says, you think, you think I'm in for charity here, kid? What do you think I'm doing here? You put it in a machine? You, you don't, come on, give me the money. You got to get some more of the money? Where's the rest of it? To put it all in there. He says, you mean to tell me you put all the machine? He says, you, look, you got to have two cans of tomato soup. You got to have, uh, what is this, uh, fresh silver cup. What is your, was your old lady think I sell nothing but, does she think I sell stale bread, fresh? Why does she have right fresh on here? Fresh, forget it. I, I'm not going to give you this for nothing. And more people come pouring in. And I start to get that sick, scared feeling. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I spent the... This is a supper. I spent the supper money. I go back out of the store now, and I'm scared. Have you ever had the feeling of being scared to go home? You were really scared, really scared to go home. So I stood out next to Asher Schlager's store, and it's getting darker and darker, and I didn't know what to do. I'm scared. And it's getting cold. All of a sudden, the door opens. Out comes Asher Schlager. I've been out there like a half an hour. And he says, hey, listen, your old lady just called. Asked me if you were still here. Why don't you get home? Go on home. Don't stand around out here now. Get home. Your old lady's worrying about you. I wanted to ask him whether he pulled her. I was too scared to even do that. So finally, I figured this is it. I got to go. So I went back home, very circuitously, circuitously, up and down through the alleys. And by this time, my old man is home. He came home from supper, for supper about 5.30, 6 o'clock. I had left the house not later than 4 o'clock, maybe. The old man, I rarely got home after my old man, you know, unless it was a, you know, some kind of a thing at school or something. And he's sitting in the kitchen there reading the paper. I come into the kitchen. It was hot. My mother says, uh, no, so you finally got here. All right. She said, put the bread over here. I cut no bread. She didn't even look at me. She says, all right, come on, put it over here. Let's go. Go in and get washed for supper. You're late for supper. What are you, you know, always messing around. Now, the next time you don't come home from the store, I'm really going to, you're going to really get the business, you know. She, I go into my bedroom. I got no bread. Nothing. I don't have no soup. I don't have anything. at that point that I embarked on my life of crime. I don't want anybody listening now to say anything about it because, well, I just don't want you to mention it. My brother had a green turtle that he got from my Aunt Gwen for his birthday like two years before, and the green turtle had a slot on his back. 
and it was my brother's turtle bank. And every time he had a birthday or something, or my Uncle Tom gave him a half a dollar or something, he would put it in his turtle bank. And his turtle bank was heavy with half dollars and stuff. Now, my kid brother was out in the kitchen, you know, just walking around whining. And I saw the turtle bank. The turtle bank, we had this uh, chest of drawers that had Bozo the Clown and all kinds of people painted all over it. You know, it had the Snoopy and the Seven Dwarfs and everything on it. And on top of it was the turtle bank. I took down the turtle bank, and on the bottom of the turtle bank, there was a rubber plug that you could pull out. I pulled out the rubber plug, and I started to shake it. And out came some quarters and some dimes and some half dollars. I had a whole handful of them. I stuck them in my sheepskin coat and put the rubber plug back and put the turtle back on top of the chest of drawers with Snoopy and the seven dwarfs all over it. I then left the bedroom, and instead of turning left to go into the kitchen, I turned right, which took me through the living room, out the front door, down the steps to the porch, out into the cold. Thirty seconds later, I'm back in Aschenschlager's store, I am buying silver cup bread. I am buying two cans of Campbell's tomato soup. I am buying a couple of Twinkies for me because it's on Randy. I am buying Hellman's mayonnaise. I now have it in a bag, and I notice in my glove, I still have like 35 cents left over. So I put a nickel in the thing, and it went ding, 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 ding. I got a blue ball of gum. I put another nickel in. Ding, 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 ding. A yellow ball of gum. It was just about that moment. Just about that moment. I realized that I was not a gambler. And the great fear that was down in my gut was slowly being banked like an ancient fire of hell. At least I had the... I had the Campbell's tomato soup. And I had the silver cup bread. But I had stolen my kid brother's birthday money. The money that he was saving for the time when he was going to buy an airplane. Said he was going to buy an airplane one day. He never did buy the airplane, you know. Ten minutes later, I'm back in the kitchen. The bag of Aschenschlager groceries is on the sink. You're sitting down to supper. But I am unclean brother innocently sitting there, shoveling in the meatloaf, drinking his Campbell's soup out of a Shirley Temple mug. A victim. 
Cain and Abel all over again. My old man, sitting there drinking his pap's blue ribbon beer, does not know he has he sired an evil person. An evil person. My mother over there stirring the mashed potatoes, dishing out the grape. To this day, they don't know about it. So they'll come and ask me about pinball machines and give you a history of pinball machines. They have led many a man down the track of perdition. Maybe just as well I lost that night. Had I won, I could be standing around this very day with a checkered vest, a seedy character carrying the morning telegraph around with me every morning, hoping to win again sometime. And so in each man's life, there are the gathering storm clouds and the howling winds of last year's typhoons screaming over the desolate baseland of the desert of time. <laughs> So tonight's program, as it was dedicated to Ed McMahon, another another great man of our time, was choreographed by Jerome Robbins. The Technicolor photography was by Natalie Kelmus. It was directed by Elia Kazan. We wish to thank the Yugoslavian Army for their their great cooperation, without which this picture could not have been made. And we dedicate it to our clerk typist, whose unstinting and unremitting and tremendous activity brought about this entire creation. So uh, stand tall, friends, pull in your gut, take a clean thought before tomorrow, and uh, thank God, it may just do it for you.